It's World War II again. It's World War II again. Oh, yes. And on the Overnightscape Central, we are joined by Doc Slees and Frank Edward Nora as we um, have a little chit-chat about the big one. The one, oh, man, that, that we went through quite a bit during World War II. We talk about the austerities of this lockdown um, do you realize there was a point in World War II where people were like using wood shavings and other strange concoctions because there wasn't any coffee at all for citizens? In fact, I can only imagine what our boys fighting overseas were uh, getting at that uh, time. But yeah, there were a lot of things that we take for granted for, like tires, uh, that just, you couldn't get them. Or if you got them, uh, it was on a black market, and uh, no, not the kind that now you would be all virtuous. Well, I got mine on a black market, so uh, yeah, take that. Um, no, 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 not <laughs> Oh, man, the, 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 the language has so many ups, downs, and curves. But nonetheless, we are here to discuss World War Two, and uh, yep. Yeah, let's uh, just get the ball a rolling and uh, see what Doc Slees, who has the advantage of being in the United Kingdom, which went through a completely different and much more up close and person. You want to talk about austerity and whinge about how tough it was for American citizens? Um, you didn't have. Bombs falling out of the sky uh, on a regular basis in the United States. It's small detail, you know. Anyways, here's the doc. I'm of a generation for whom World War II, even though we didn't live through it, felt very real and very close. When I was born, the war hadn't been over 20 years, you know. Um, and I grew up in an environment where everybody knew someone who had served in the war. More often than not relatives, if not one's father or grandfather, then certainly there'd be uncles, whatever, who, who had done wartime service of some kind. It's certainly true for me, um, you know. My um, my uncle Charlie had, had been a um, <clears throat> had been a, a flight engineer on a Lancaster bomber during the during the war. Um, uh, he, my father's brother and brothers in law had both been uh, in in the army. One one in the Royal Engineers, the other in the Transport Corps. Um, my father himself served towards the end, end of the war, not in the military, but in the merchant navy. Um, in his late, in his sort of mid, to, in his yeah, mid to late teens, then because um, you could sign on at fifteen, you could sign on to to a ship in those days as a crewman. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, even at that point, forty four, forty five, um, U boats were still very active. 
um, British merchant ship, well, merchant shipping generally, but British merchant shipping in particular, uh, was was still very vulnerable to uh, to U-boat attacks. In virtually any theatre they, they they sailed in in in, uh, in Europe. And, you know, they all had friends who'd served in World War II in some capacity or other. Um, on my mother's side of the family, my, my, my father, my grandfather, had been in, in, in the war. I mean, he'd, he'd been a soldier, been captured at Dunkirk, and much to his annoyance, had had to sit out uh, <laughs> virtually the entire war on a prisoner of war camp. Um, so much to his annoyance, because he was looking forward to a good war. He was a professional soldier. And um, my grandmother's second, because she, she divorced and <laughs> married another Irish soldier during the course of the war, um, who was in the tank corps. See, she, she liked to, you know, be even-handed, you know. One was in the infantry, the other one in the tank corps. Um, both were Irish, one a Protestant, the other, <laughs> the other one a Catholic. So, you know, even-handed was my, my grandmother. So it was all around you. You heard about it all. You heard references to it because, like a lot of people, really did serve in in, in the war and saw action. People like my uncle Charlie didn't really like to talk. Didn't particularly talk about his actual experiences a great deal. He'd spin you a yarn about things, but you really had to pin him down to get him to tell you um, some of the the realities of of war you know, of going on these bombing raids. Mainly that it was ex basically it was terrifying. Uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you had to fly for hours on end in the pitch black with the most rudimentary of navigational gear to, uh, by, by today's standards, to drop bombs on complete strangers, whilst other complete strangers attempted to shoot you down. Um, So, say the war just seemed very real to my generation. And plus you had war movies on television, war drama, <coughs> war films were really at their, World War II films were really at their peak in the 50s and 60s. Because they were made to appeal to two different generations. In the 50s, they tended to be a bit more realistic war pictures and they were made to appeal to people who had actually served in the war because they used to go for greater authenticity and fidelity um, to events and to equipment and whatever. 60s war films became spectacles because they were being aimed less at people who had actually been in the war than that generation of young men who just missed it. And so they became more standardised adventure films that happened to be set in World War II. And they didn't care about the fidelity of equipment, you know. Hey, you know, if we're to believe war films made in the 60s, the United States Army was equipping the um, the Germans with all manner of uh, <laughs> all manner of armoured vehicles. But there you go. But the thing is, times move on now. Because as I say, so for, for me, my generation, and I'm guessing here, Frank's a bit younger than me, so it probably might have been similar for him. I'm guessing it certainly was so for PQ, because he's older than me. 
Um, if you said the war, everybody knew what you meant. There was only one war, World War Two. When you said, oh, that happened during the war, or he served during the war, you knew exactly what they meant. I mean, whilst <clears throat> people weren't naive enough to dub it the war to end all wars, as they had to the previous world war, um, they hoped, there was a hope that it might be more peaceful, um, although we settled down to a cold war instead afterwards, but It was the war. Everybody thought no other war. There could be not. not well, it wasn't the war to end all wars. There would not be a war like it again. Not on its scale. Um, and the likelihood it would all end with a exchange of nuclear weapons if it happened again. Hostility between the the the, the, the great powers again. But that was it. It was the war. Today, I'm sure if you said the war to younger people, they would ask you, which war are you talking about? Which one do you mean? You know, you mean Vietnam? Do you mean the Falklands War? You know, war in Ukraine, Gulf War. Because time has moved on and we've reached that point with World War II, the war, where there are very few people left who experienced it certainly experienced it as adults and there's only a handful of people left now who actually fought it and saw combat in it so it's it's we're moving to that stage where like as with world war what happened with world war one when the last survivors of world war one died away world war two is truly finally becoming history it's no longer a personal experience. Okay, you know, there's still people who experience the war as true. My mother, she's 90 now. She experienced the war as a child on the home front. But as I say, you have to be in your 90s now to have a recollection of it. And so it's reached that stage, World War II, where we can look at it more objectively because it isn't, it was before when there were masses of people who'd served in it and remembered it firsthand. It was an emotive thing. It's something they had personally experienced, and it was very difficult for them to separate or to be objective about it. It's difficult for anybody else to be objective about it because, you know, you had these people who had actually experienced it, even if their recollections might be um, faded or sometimes wrong. Uh, you know, it's... it's it's difficult to argue with. You will always take the personal recollection over some objective history, historical view. But now we can be more objective about it. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, because you know, we, we, can, we can look at... The thing about World War II was, unlike World War I, World War II is one of the few wars few conflicts, large-scale conflicts, where it was very clear-cut about what we were, each side was fighting for, about what we were fighting for. World War I was, was the culmination of, a, of the games between 
and rivalries between imperial powers. World War II was a clash of ideologies at the end of the day. It was very clear cut to an extent. <laughs> it was about the defeat of in the Pacific um, expansionist Japanese imperialism and most importantly to, to certainly to the UK here in the UK um, in Europe it was the defeat of fascism you know um, and it seemed seemed to uh, then and even now it's it does look clear cut the, the western powers that opposed Germany were far from perfect in themselves um, you know they, they didn't have perfect democratic systems but they did at least have democratic systems Fascism in all its forms, you know, whether practiced by Mussolini, his fascistas, or Nazism in, Ger in, in Germany, again, was very clear-cut ideology in opposition to the very concept of freedom and democracy we espouse in the West. You know, and just to, uh, just to sort of um, describe fascism properly, Fascism, in whatever form it's taken, is, is, is basically a form of making the corporate, merging the state with corporate interests, ultimately, um, <clears throat> where, where the individual is subservient to, I say, corporate interests, profits, etc., etc. I mean, you know, it was very fashionable a while ago to spout nonsense about Nazism being somehow left wing because the, you know, Nazi is a contraction of national socialism. Um, well, trust me, there was nothing socialist about um, the Nazi party. Indeed, when Hitler was asked to describe socialism, he simply said it's, um, he described it as being a, a deep love of one's country. The word socialism was put in there to draw in the working classes to support the thing. Trust me, if they'd been left wing, they wouldn't spend their time um, sending socialists and communists to concentration camps. Which brings us, of course, to the where it becomes less clear cut World War II. Of course, we had to ally ourselves with the Soviet Union, um, a communist state. Um, And the difference between that and fascism is, of course, that under, communi under communism as, as practiced in the Soviet Union, it's the merging of the party and the state become indivisible. I mean, the party claims to represent the proletariat and therefore become and eventually becomes indivisible from the state before eventually, of course, it's meant to wither away and die. Once all these self-regulating Soviet systems are set up, but that's another story. But it's a case of necessity, because at that time, the Soviet Union wasn't expansionist. Nazi Germany was. And it was just felt we had a bit more in common with the communists than we did with the Nazis. Um, at that time, we didn't know that the, 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 under Stalin, the communists were almost as zealous as, as, the, um, as, as Nazi Germany in exterminating uh, uh, Jews, for instance. But there you go. That's another story. But by and large, 
it's possible to look back on World War Two as being, you know, a more righteous war from our point of view. But it's easy for us because we're the winners and we got to write the history. So. <laughs> but to get back to fascism, that was another legacy of the war. See, I, I say it automatically, the war, without having to define it was that it discredited extreme, the extreme right in the long term in the Western world, in the Western democracies. Um, it became worse. The memory of the war lingered on and there were first-hand memories of it. Or, you know, even large numbers of people of my generation who, for whom, although we hadn't experienced it, we'd, we'd grown up... Um, immersed in other people's recollections of the war, the extreme right was extremely discredited and we knew it should never be allowed to rise again and get to power again. But now, of course, we're so distanced from those events. People forget we have younger generations who don't, who don't recall it. It's not as immediate to them what happened in the 1930s that led to the, the, the rise of, of the extreme right in places like Germany and Italy, Spain, or Romania, which eventually resulted in World War II. And hence we have, again, the inexorable, it seems, rise of the extreme right even in Europe. As I speak, as I speak, Italy has a government-led by what would be defined, certainly here in the UK or in any other European country, as an extreme right-wing party. Having said that, the, the um, uh, much of the utterings, like I'm not going to go into this in depth because it's wandering off the subject, much of the utterings of our ruling Conservative government in this country verge on the extreme right now. Um, some of the policies they want to do with immigration, um, some of the rhetoric they use is actually painfully close to that used <clears throat> by what used to be fringe extreme right parties in this country that used to idolise the likes of Hitler. But there we come up with the other irony. Because despite the fact the details are faded, World War II, in this country, World War II is something of an obsession. It is <laughs> constantly referred to. Uh, people of my generation have this unhealthy knowledge of it. Other younger people, it's this vaguer thing, but it's invoked as some kind of golden age um, when, you know, Britain pulled together. Yeah. We didn't let class differences get in the way or anything. We all pulled together to defeat the Bosch. Every time this country hits some kind of crisis, we have the blitz spirit being invoked by conservative politicians. Idiotically, always, because, you know, I don't see how you can compare an economic recession or even a pandemic with the Luftwaffe coming and dropping bombs on our cities and literally bombing people out of their homes. You know, uh, <laughs> there is no comparison. Um, 
the Blitz, if you talk to people who live through the Blitz, particularly people in London, but lots of other, every major, virtually every major city in this country suffered um, bombing attacks, often very devastating. Southampton down the road, well, because it's one of our major docks, was parts of it were levelled during the war. Um, it's the idea you invoke this is some kind of sort of you know exemplar people would tell you who lived through it the blitz spirit was largely a myth cooked up as propaganda by the government to stop mass panic the reality of that of the blitz the mass and the bombing by night mainly of british cities it was sheer terror because that's what it was intended to do, to terrorise the local population. And that's why we did it in, in turn to the, to the Germans. It was terror. People were absolutely terrified. You know, they could be killed, blown up in their own homes. You know, any night of the week, it seemed. It, you know, <laughs> the Blitz spirit. You know, say large parts of our major cities were levelled. Um, but of course, you had Winston Churchill saying, well, we can take it. Now, of course, because it's wartime propaganda and all those film, all those newsreels were carefully edited. What they don't show is the reality that he often got a hostile reception from people in these, when he went to some area that had been bombed the night before. You know, there are lots of people now homeless. Lost relatives, lost friends, lost their local pub, lost their workplace. And he frequently, Churchill and other government were frequently barracked, you know, on one of the occasions, you know, when he said, ah, we can take it. You know, he, was, he was doing that for the cameras, you know, people shouting, it's right for you to bloody say that, Winnie. You know, you don't have to take it. You can hide in your bunker. That was the reality of it. People displaced. It was like, um, you know, the end of World War Two when there's a refugee problem. There's displaced people tried to get back home, and it was like that in Britain for a while during the Blitz. People on a smaller scale, people displaced from one borough of London, say by bombing because their house being destroyed, etc. Yeah, they had to go and try and find housing in other boroughs who had their own problems created by the by by the destruction of homes by the bombing. And so people came like refugees wandering around and trying to find somewhere to, to find shelter, to find sustenance. Yeah, it's it's terrible. It's blitz spirit. Yeah, bloody nonsense. <laughs> But that brings me to something else. The experience of World War II varies, of course, from country to country, from nation to national memory to national memory. I mean, let's face in the US, if I asked you when World War II took place, you'd say it started in 1941 and took place between 41 and 45. Here, we'll tell you it started in 1939 and finished in 1945, you know. Um, <coughs> that's the reality of it. Our reality included this this harrowing period of, of as I said, the home front of having to take this destruction. You know, being hit 
in your homes by the Germans for a large part until we, well, until D-Day, until France was the invasion of France in 1940, the middle of 1944, the Germans were still able to utilise airfields in France to send mass bombing missions. In fact, the last German manned mass man bombers bombing missions were in 1944, shortly before Operation Overlord. Um, it was it was the, the the second blitz they launched to try and demoralise the British population because they knew what was coming and they were trying to demoralise the population, destroy as much infrastructure and industry as they could. It failed because we had much better air defences by then. We had radar equipment, night fighters in large numbers and so on. So, and of course, even after that, once they were forced back from those bases in France, their bombers, they, they rained down V1 flying bombs and then V2 rockets on us. London has the distinction of being one of only two cities to suffer a missile attack in World War II, the other one being Amsterdam, which the Germans rained um, V2s down on once they were forced to withdraw. And that's our experience of war, and it's tempered only by the fact that we we ended up on the winning side. In the US, you you never suffered the war on the home front in the same way we did. You didn't have your native soil attacked, apart from Pearl Harbor, I know, Hawaii, which is part of the United States. But that was a specific attack on a specific military target. Yeah, it was. It was. So that's part. That's that. That defines the British experience of World War Two as being somewhat different to the U.S. experience. Um, the U.S. is a different experience f for a lot of U.S. servicemen who, in World War Two. Is this experience of being sent halfway around the world uh, to Europe? You know, to guys who'd never left the country, never left their state before, were sent to fight this bloody war. Somewhere else, it was, uh, you know, they, they were uprooted and sent somewhere else. Had to so suddenly find us plonked down in a different culture in Britain where we more or less spoke the same language. And <laughs> that was about it. Um, there's a fascinating um, film put out by the US Army that's available online. You can find it on Twitter, on YouTube and places. It features Burgess, a young Burgess Meredith advising American troops on how to behave in, in the United Kingdom. Fascinating film, especially the bit about racism. It's interesting. It has to be a warning, particularly to soldiers from the southern states arriving in Britain, that um, it wouldn't be unusual for British civilians of any colour or class to happily mix with black American soldiers and even invite them into the home, which is true. They were quite a novelty um, you know, just we, we had our problems with racism, still do. We had our problems with racism, but it wasn't by then as institutionalized as it was in some US states. Um, there wasn't segregation, for instance, formal segregation. Um, and so, you know, British, a uh, uh, black American soldier that came here were, were quite a novelty to us. And, um, yeah, maybe because the sheer numbers, we had black soldiers as well, black servicemen. But it was the sheer numbers and the fact they're different accents. Yeah. Anyway, I digress.
but the common experience that both and the and it, it, and it defines the way we look back on World War Two, the common experience that we UK and the US have is that we ended up on the winning side. So to us, in the end, in in Britain, it, it seen it's, it's this ordeal we had to endure to eventually get to victory. Um, for the US is the victory of American military might and know-how and technology. It's, it, it, it's an experience to look back on. It, it um, asserted America as a, a, as a world power. But obviously, um, although they also end up, France, for instance, had a completely different experience of World War II. For them, there was defeat, there was occupation, there was collaboration with the Vichy regime, um, were effectively effectively collaborated with, with the with the Nazis, that's the occupation forces. Um, very different experience. There's there's whilst they ended up victors, you know, the Free French Army which was formed in the UK, ended up victorious, they liberated Paris, they you know it's always tinged by a certain degree of shame that France capitulate was forced to capitulate early in the war. For country like the Low Countries is even worse. They 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 were overrun by the Germans. You know, even earlier in 1940, they were unable to put up much of a fight. They spent virtually the entire war occupied, suffering deprivations under under, under Nazi occupation. For them, World War Two is a, is a different experience. They look back on it differently. It's more difficult for them to look back on, on World War II the way we in this country do and, and the US do as this great victory, righteous victory, the for, right forces of righteousness. One out, you know, we never had to suffer occupation. We suffered bombing in this country and as I say, the devastation of the Blitz, but we were never, never occupied. Apart from the Channel Islands, we were never occupied by um, hostile forces in the UK. We didn't have that experience. We didn't have the experience of having to capitulate. So it's interesting, World War Two. there's all these different perspectives on it. Now, in Germany, again, you talk to Germans, they have a very different memory and experience of World War Two. Again, it's... <clears throat> it's very complicated for them. Um, because of the, the legacy of Nazism, um, the, you know, the whole concentration camps and, and you know, all that, the, the genocide of the, of the Jews, you know, the Holocaust, is very, very difficult for them. Um, there is a degree of shame still felt in Germany over it. Um, but at the same time, there's pride in... They're regular armed forces, you know, not the SS, the SS which was effectively the, the, the Nazi party's military wing. Um, the regular army and the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine. You know, there's a certain pride that they went toe to toe with, with, um, with the UK and the US. And, and for a while they held their own, for a while they had the upper hand. Um, the, there's still that, and it's interesting. Again, it's the common experience, though, to all of us, is, is 
all the participating uh, nations would see is still that desire to salvage something, even those who end up defeated, with finding some kind of heroes in it. Um, because a lot of, yeah, UK war effort, there was a lot of incompetence <laughs> at the highest levels, particularly with our generals, the army, dear, oh dear, they, they, half the time they seem to be fighting um, the last, yeah, the war before. It's why to us, Field Marshal Montgomery is, is, is still held up. This, there are attempts to assail his reputation. But he's still held up as, as, a, as, as a military hero, a great British military leader, because he grasped modern warfare as it was then. Um, he was decisive and uh, he won his battles. He won his campaigns in the end. Um, that's the thing. Um, and also, unlike... Um, Unlike a lot of British senior officers, he he well he came from a family of professional soldiers. He'd fought in World War One actually. Uh, he came from a family of, of professional soldiers. Um, yeah, you forget he wasn't born to the land of gentry or anything. He only got his titles, became Sir Bernard Law Montgomery. He only got that, and eventually he had a peerage. As well as that, he was in the House of Lords. He only got those; they were given to him after the war and recognition well he came sir uh, during the war there were there was just titles given to him in recognition of his services as a military leader um, no money came with them because uh, when he retired um, he used to go and uh, he lived very modestly in a cottage with his wife and he used to go and queue up as he had to in those days at the local post office to collect his state um, <clears throat> old age pension every month because as he pointed out when there was sort of the newspapers trying to ridicule because he's a funny old bugger they sort of ridicule him for doing this but as he pointed out his his state pension which he was entitled to he paid in for it along with his army pension were his sole means of income well, that and his wife's state pension they were the sole means of income they had after the war after he'd retired from the military Anyway, we idolize. Yeah, we idolize. That. I mean, in the U.S., this General Patton is is great. Yeah, despite the fact he was a nutcase. Um, however, he was a, a an often brilliant um, military leader and commander. Um, of that, there's no doubt. But he was nuts. Hey, Montgomery was pretty eccentric as well. Actually, um, he was considered. He was considered. Montgomery was considered a complete nut job himself at the time because he he didn't drink or didn't smoke and was a fitness fanatic, and he wouldn't allow smoking in his briefings and things. Was, um, that was considered very odd back in the nineteen forties. But even Germany, Germany has its um, strives to find figures from the war that they can look to admiringly who aren't tainted by Nazis, which is why Rommel, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, is often seen in Germany, both here as well, outside of Germany, is sort of the, the archetypal good German soldier. And 
to be fair to Rommel, um, unlike many German generals, he wouldn't cooperate with the SS. He wouldn't hand prisoners over to them. He believed in such things as the Geneva Convention. There were certain rules that wars had to be had to be observed between combatants and war, and he tried to stick to them in the way he conducted. And again, he was a brilliant tactician. Um, but the reality is, though, you can never get away from this, is that he was a beneficiary of the Nazi system. Um, it's, he, was, he was one of a class of Germans who went along with the Nazi regime up to a point because it was making Germany great again. They felt making Germany yeah, after the humiliations of the Versailles Treaty after World War II, um, after World War One rather. And they went along with it without necessarily buying into all the ideology. And they tried to pretend that they didn't know what was going on with the Jews and so on. But in truth, they must have. And in truth, as I say, they were beneficiaries of that system. It was the Nazi party that financed the war machine that they, you know, provided all those tanks that they commanded. And another similar one would, would be Adolf Galland, the World War II German fighter race, often idolised in Germany. But again, he's similar to, to, to Rommel in that he he went along with the system because it served his ends and basically tried to pretend he didn't know what was going to be. Again, he was a beneficiary of it. You know, the aircraft he flew and the, equipped the squadrons he commanded. They were provided ultimately by the Nazi government. Many of them built using slave labour. But such is war. Not that I believe that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still happy to let the Germans have, have, have the likes of Rommel and Galland as military years of World War II. Um, it's fine because, you know, in their own way, they were perfectly decent men. They were just soldiers ultimately fighting for their country, as I was worth, you know, regardless of, of, of political considerations, they felt they were doing their duty. Yes, so, you know, the, but also, I mentioned war films earlier, and war films again reflect the experience that each country that makes them had of war. You know, as I say, British and American war films, we can revel in the victories in them. You know, our guys are the good guys, clearly, they're, they're, they're out fighting the good for even though they might be flawed etc etc and the yeah especially as the 60s went on into the 70s you know that was the fashion in films to uh, be less black and white in their moral judgments to have more uh, morally flawed heroes but nevertheless we knew ultimately we were the good guys and also we could afford to explore because damn it we'd won so we could afford to explore all these issues of you know, but the countries make war movies. Um, French war movies tend to focus on 
um, the struggle at home, the resistance. Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of the Shadows is a good example, an incredibly harrowing, in many ways, account of the work of the resistance that strips away the glamour that many other productions tried to put on. I mean, Melville himself was part of the French resistance in the war. And, uh, yeah, that, that's a fascinating film to watch. Well worth a watch if you get the chance. Army of the Shadows. I can't remember what the title is in French, but it's a, it's a fascinating insider's portrait of what it was like to be part of the resistance in occupied France. Um, German war films, again, are different. They make war movies. Um, they tend to be much more introspective because they have all these moral problems with the way they, they depict it. And often their films are about the futility of war <laughs> and, you know, the, the moral aspects of it. Um, Japanese, Japanese war films try to be historical, World War II movies. They, they, they often have featured... Um, very elaborate recreations of carrier battles, the naval battles in the Pacific, um, using large-scale models of the kind you'll see in Godzilla films. And, and in fact, those and they're made by the same guys who used to make all the models in the Godzilla films. <laughs> and the, some Japanese war movies are fat, all these fantastically detailed <clears throat> ships, ship models, large-scale ship models, and playing they have planes coming up, you know, launch off the decks of aircraft carriers. It's absolutely fantastic in the technical aspects. And they tried to just be very historically accurate recreations, factual recreations of, of, of what went on without trying to delve into the politics behind it and the issues of Japanese imperialism. Italian war films are the most interesting because, again, Italy had that problem. That they, they were well, they were fascists, um, and they changed sides partway through the war. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the Mussolini's regime collapsed, and um, the southern parts of Italy, at least, surrendered to the Allies, and and eventually. Um, were allowed to form their own new armed forces which fought alongside the allies yeah there was a there was a new italian air force that was equipped with british and american planes that was usually deployed against targets in occupied U well, yugoslavia as it was then and the adriatic there you go um so in Italian war films, I mentioned this before, but they are fascinating because Italian war films relatively rarely depict Italian armed forces in them. They feature lots of Italian actors pretending to be British or American soldiers. And the Germans are always cast as the villains. <laughs> um it's, it's fascinating the way they do that. Um, the only times I have seen a 
Italian war films attempt to be slightly more serious and actually address their own experience. There are, are two films made decades apart about the Battle of El Alamein. And again, it illustrates the point that both those films illustrate the way our experiences of the same event can be so diverse depending upon what that event's outcome was for you. Because here in Britain, the Battle of El Alamein, Second Battle of El Alamein, is seen as is one of the is the great victory of the Desert War. It was the turning point which Montgomery took command of the Eighth Army, and he launched this offensive which put Rommel on the back foot, and they chased the Africa Corps eventually all the way back to Tunisia. Um, but to the Italians in particular, it was this harrowing defeat because they bore the brunt of some of the early British offensives in the battle, the Second Battle of Alamein. They suffered terrible losses. It was their best soldiers, the airborne soldiers, were in these front lines and they were decimated by the British attacks. Um, and worse than that, when the Germans withdrew, they actually stole. This is absolutely true. They would say requisition. The Italians would tell they stole the Italians' transport, their trucks, so they could, the Germans could evacuate more quickly. And they left the Italians in the lurch. And lots of Italians, those who weren't killed, the initial British offences, were captured. Huge numbers of them were captured. And it was effectively, it was the effective end of the Italian army as a fighting force in World War II. It was hugely traumatic to Italy and to Italians. And both of the films I've seen about it reflect that. The early one made in the 60s is, is more of a... is a more typical Italian war film. And it's interesting that Montgomery's portrayed very unsympathetically and it was Rommel's portrayed much more sympathetically. Even though in the end the, the Germans are seen as villainous because they steal the, the Italians' trucks. Um... The British are seen as ruthless, utterly ruthless. <laughs> it's it's bizarre to see us portrayed that way. Um, whereas usually they're sort of seen as British. Uh, it's the way we prefer to portray ourselves in war films. It's slightly bumbling, but hey, we get there in the end. You know, good old British resolve. And British sergeant major shouting at people. That's what gets us. That's what wins wars. You know, we get there in the end. British decency shows through. <coughs> Equally, the second film about El Alamein, which I made, made a couple of decades later, equally shows the British as utterly ruthless, but they're more faceless in that one because it focuses entirely on the Italian experience, of the experience of Italian soldiers on that front line and this terrible defeat they suffered. I mean, it's just shown as this, it's just relentless night after night People forget the battle, the second battle of El Alamein took, took place over several days. And night after night, basically, the British were, were punching through the Italian lines to, to basically demoralise them and then withdrawing, having inflicted heavy casualties on them before launching one final offensive, which basically broke the Italian lines. At which point, I say, the Italians couldn't retreat because the Germans had stolen their transport. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. This thing to us, victory, 
Italians trauma. It's, uh, yeah. And that's something now, as I say, to bring this full circle, to get back to what I was talking about earlier. We now as a whole, even here in this country, we can, we're finally at a stage now where World War II has receded far enough into history, even though it's still invoked in this country, some kind of golden age of Britishness and uh, it's all cobblers. We, we can appreciate to some extent the other participants, even the ones who are on the opposite side. We can begin to appreciate their perspective on the war. And that whilst it's different from ours, the experience it's based upon is no less valid. Whereas one time there was only one history of the war you could subscribe to, and that was the one written by, by basically US and UK historians. The English language history of the war, that was the one that, that prevailed. But now other voices can be heard and other perspectives, which is only healthy. But there you go, I've, ra I've, I've rambled on long enough, so, um, you know, um, yeah, I'm dog-tired, I've, you know, <laughs> I finally got my feeding fixed last week, and, you know, I was out at a toy and train collector fair this evening, and, oh, God, I'm knackered now. Anyway. Toy and Train Collector Fair. Now, actually, as a last final note, it's a regular thing. It's every month it runs. I don't go every month, but, you know. Um, I was up there this evening. And I noticed, it's, I mean, it's not just, I say, I go for the model railways. But there's also a lot of other old toys being sold there. Um, principally, a lot of them are like old uh, die-cast metal vehicles. Dinky toys, corky toys, matchbox cars. And I was fascinated looking at some of the the, the, the um, dinky toys made in, in the... Um, they date back to the 50s, 60s, these. And the number of them that are military subjects, often World War II vehicles. That's interesting. And these were aimed fairly in squid. I mean, I used to own some of those when I was a kid. Um... Fairly squarely at children, which is something you won't see now, not just because, I don't know, ideas about pacifism and, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging people, children to be warlike. It's simply because back then, as I said, the war was so fresh in the, in, in the public consciousness. It's something, say, for children, it seemed like it happened only yesterday. In historical terms, it had. And so it was only natural to manufacture these toys that reflected that. And kids wanted to play with them because they wanted to uh, reenact experience in some way on a, their sandpit or whatever, on the carpet in the living room. Something of the stories they were hearing, as I was, from their older relatives who had actually served in the war. But now they're just these curiosities. My God, they used to, you know, younger people, my God, they used to make 
stuff like that for kids. I mean, now military models are for specialist collectors or war gamers, you know, or military enthusiasts, military his historical enthusiasts. Here you go. Times change. We move on. And on that note, I'm going to say back to you, PQ. Oh, there's no end. Has there have to be many theses, th theses, <laughs> on the the influence of World War Two on the toys way up into even my era, which, you know, and and it's really interesting. You ask everybody uh, how long, and the USA was in World War Two, and they nineteen forty one to nineteen. We weren't. 1941, it was already December when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And, yeah, that's a real stretch. We really weren't in the war a solid four years, what, maybe three. It was not this... It, it, they, it, and also World War One. That it, it, everybody else was in it a whole lot more than the United States was. We just kind of slipped in at the end after our little isolationist came, and uh, you know, letting uh, Pearl Harbor happen, which I I do subscribe. I don't know whether we let it happen. We knew. We antagonized Japan to the point, at the very least, that they would attack us so we could use that as an excuse. And just every bit of research I've read kind of... And, and in the long haul, that sacrifice... Because we could not, as a nation... It, it, it would not have been popular. We could not have entered into World War II unless somebody really attacked and American citizens perished. And it was about the easiest way that we could have done that. It's just, uh, and I know, the conspiracy theories, yada, yada, yada. We love them here on the Onsug, that's for sure. And, um, yeah, I had no family in World War II. I mean, my maternal grandmother's brothers served but i was rarely if ever exposed to them and just even when they visited somehow uh i never became acquainted so to speak with them their kids somewhat uh my cousin michelle uh and all those but i i never really had those relatives sitting me on their knee and saying oh yeah it was the big one no it's just i the closest thing i had to that was my maternal grandfather just telling me about old baseball and sporting events of the 30s into the 60s when uh, he became blind and stopped being mr sports guy but yeah my grandpa sam was like mr super sports uh, he was a young athlete and played football at and basketball and a little baseball but he didn't really get to play baseball because because in the spring, uh, the family business became too busy for him to be able to 
participate and be available at the end of the season when they might need him, so to speak. But yeah, sports. <laughs> and yeah, World War II baseball and football and sports during World War II were seriously curtailed. Almost any able athlete was uh, not permitted to uh, stay back. And you know, Ted Williams, he would have been an even greater baseball player. Joe DiMaggio, a bunch of all of the greats, they went off to war off to battle so to speak and and the radio back then i mean the, the most popular show from what i understand was of course the jack benny program and during world war ii for a couple of those years they did their shows they would take the whole cast and travel to various uh, training camps and air force bases in the united states and uh, perform the show live for the troops and broadcast it. Uh, there was a lot of really interesting things. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, all the rationing and, you know, meat and eggs and bread. You got these little books with points and that's what you could get of course and you had to save all your grease and oils and turn it in because even your bacon grease was a valuable asset that could be used and the reason old magazines and old newspapers are so rare is uh, kids were recruited and urged to go from house to house begging for scrap paper and yeah uh, a lot of the early comic books what they call the platinum age doubtless just that was bye-bye off to the war effort and of course at the time that made perfect sense and uh, nobody was particularly you know, comic book collecting on a scale like what we look at it now didn't happen till you know, my era there was they were still junk i mean only kooks collected comic books when uh that's why I wound up with my cousin's comic book collections. Their parents told them, look, you're growing up now. Give them to Brett. It's time for you to pull up, be a big boy and not play with comic books. And they dutifully and without even a second thought until years later. <laughs> when suddenly they were, they were just comic. Oh, God, they're worth so much. Yeah, I went through that phase and... Yeah, World War II in comic books was interesting because they were hinting that we were going to be going to war. I mean, you read old Golden Age comic books as far back as 1940. Uh, they're, they're pointing out these uh, fictitious uh, European nations that are despots and uh, the heroes are going over and rescuing people and fighting along with the, the gallant British and French. Uh, th th there was uh, hints clearly more than two years before we entered the war and if you read old newspapers like i do very much the same uh, pearl harbor may have been a shock and a surprise but that we were there was this big conflict going on and eventually we were going to fall into it uh, seems 
pretty inevitable in our popular culture of the time. And uh, yeah, and what's really weird is thinking again at family members. I know my maternal grandfather had eyesight problems that probably made him 4F and he actually had to go from the Catskills and during World War II he had to go into New York City and work in war plants uh, for the war effort Uh, so he like participated he left home and all that I don't think the whole family went even I think my mother and my grandmother remained uh, Catskills side with the family and he went and uh, worked his little hiney off in the big city uh, for at least part of World War II and my paternal grandfather now I am puzzled because as far as I know yes when he was older he had heart problems and all of that I don't know of any reason that he wouldn't have served in World War II, but he didn't. And now, of course, my dad has passed on. I suppose I could contact, there's got to be somebody who knows, but that's, that is an interesting question. And uh, yeah, we and toys. We had GI Joe, and, and all these great little toys, and all of course those little uh, ubiquitous plastic generic soldiers. Which generally, I guess they may have had Korean garb. I'm no expert on war gear and uniforms, but that's the other thing. I mean, there were the kids who knew. I wasn't allowed to have G.I. Joes, by the way. They went and got me astronauts. I've talked about this before. Everybody else had G.I. Joes. And, uh, yeah, I had the Major Matt Mason. And they they weren't even as big, and they weren't solid action figures. They were rubber bandy toys. Oh, man. The the, the P.Q. Rivers emasculate toys of his youth oh man and and yeah because they were the bendy toys inevitably the little wire inside would break and yeah that was the end of all of those toys once a couple of the wires broke and they didn't bend and pose anymore they wound up yes in 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 that sand pit where uh, all uh toys burned when the parents weren't looking and you grabbed a few matches and some kindling yes the little the miniature uh, bonfires of uh toys we either outgrew or were broken or just just needed to go for whatever reasons to, to the it's just that destruction that kids need uh that at least the kids of my era i don't know the kids I don't think kids are allowed out in the woods with matches by themselves anymore. Uh, I, I don't think, does that happen? Is, is that still the thing, or are they that over-supervised in uh, 2022 that something like that just couldn't happen? Maybe in the sink or the tub at home, but never like out in a sand pit somewhere where grown-ups wouldn't see? Does it? I don't know. I am blissfully ignorant of what uh, kids today do or don't do. And, yeah, I don't know if that's good. Or do you, as a father, is it incumbent upon you to go with 
these toys with your child. I mean, let's not be sexist. Maybe the little girl's Barbies need to go. Do girls ever, like, sneak off in the woods and burn? I've really gone way off field from World War II now, haven't I? I I do that. Mr. Digresso, make it all about whatever I want to think about. That's the PQ Ribber method of... uh, Anyhow, uh, as promised, we do have Frank Edward Nora. Uh, I'm going to shut off the driveline for now and uh, resume what we were after. So, uh, yes, let us hand the uh, floor over to Frank Edward Nora while I reorganize my brains. Let me see if I can figure this out. Off the top of my head, I'm not looking at the Internet or anything. I think I have a good overview of World War II and what it's all about. But let me know if I make any major mistakes, will you? So it seems like the roots, you know, obviously hundreds and hundreds of years of history led up to it, but directly was the Great War, right? In the the late, in the 19 teens, was it 1917-ish, a few years. Uh, I don't know if I know as much about World War I. I mean, I know it was started with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, later to be the name of a band. And, uh, it was essentially like Germany was fighting everyone. And this is, this is sort of like the pattern. Germany, a huge country in Europe, a, a large part of Europe is, is Germany. And it seems like they're very, in, you know, they have the capacity for great industrialization, factories, infrastructure. They have the know-how, the manpower. So all these, all these countries that seem that they want to take over the world, they're countries that seem to have this capacity to mobilize for war. And with their own resources, like build lots and lots of uh, weapons of war, you know, Japan uh, sort of, you know, had been a very isolated place, but has, again, that capacity for um, building, building the, you know, the ships, the planes, the guns and training the soldiers. And of course, you know, I I think what's kind of a universal is the capacity to uh, manipulate a population to believe just about it, whatever you want them to believe to fight for you, right? So, but like other countries, like had never tried, like if you look at like South America, like none of those countries really try to ever take over the world. What, they, they don't have factories? They just don't have what it takes? I mean, is it any country in Africa? I mean, I guess Egypt was way back when, uh, but I don't know, like the countries that, like it just sort of seems like, you know, today, obviously there's China, you know, and the United States and Japan and Britain, but Anyway, it all sort of, it's this whole thing. What is it about Germany, Germany that kind of makes them now twice try to take over at least Europe, if not the world? It seems in World War II they were trying to take over the world and fail. They lost both times, you know? Now, of course, you know, I'm, I'm definitely into, uh, you know, I, I, I'm talking about the accepted mainstream history. I've heard so many other theories and conspiracy theories of what was really going on, who actually created World War II, why did it happen, it wasn't necessary. It really was, but truly it was one of the greatest, the greatest disaster in human history in terms of loss of life and destruction, I think. Uh, but I'm just talking about the history as it's sort of been accepted, you know, sort of as we've been taught it. Uh, seems that... Uh, Germany goes nuts in the 19-teens, starts to try to take over Europe, and uh, they're, they're defeated eventually. I think America gets kind of late into the war there. 
But in their defeat, they're kind of uh, humiliated and made to sort of pay reparations to all the countries they attacked. And this, of course, is a time, right, uh, after World War One. It was called the Great War before it's World War Two. Obviously, there wasn't a two yet. And we still haven't had three, even though it's been in the news a lot lately. Of course, World War Two then spawned the Cold War and kind of sort of ended, I suppose, with... Uh, the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain around 1990-91, but the Ukraine-Russia thing that's going on is definitely feels like a continuation of World War II and the Cold War kind of stuff going on there. Anyway, so then come the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, a time of uh, great uh, prosperity in a lot of places. It's with the Weimar Republic in Germany, this time period where there... And there's a great show called Babylon Berlin... I think it's on one of the streaming channels, Netflix or Amazon. Really good show about this time period where there was a lot of freedom, decadence, and uh, art, and all this stuff. But it's that, that sort of laid the, the, the groundwork for, um, for the rise of the Nazis and Hitler. And it does seem that that transformation that the rise of the National Socialist Party or the Nazis as as they're known and Hitler Adolf Hitler uh you know led Germany to then begin to prepare for war and start to take over other countries and right trigger this whole thing and I know I heard something about how the way the the victors in World War 1 how they handled uh Germany after it was defeated um, really laid the seeds for Germany's rise as this mo- monstrous power um, that if they had uh, taken a different course in terms of their plan for post-defeat Germany I- after World War One, things may have been different. Again, that's something I had heard. <clears throat> now, in the United States, of course, we had the Roaring Twenties kind of reflecting the Weimar Republic. Had a great time, and then until 1929, the stock market crash, and then the Great Depression of the 1930s. All of this, of course, with the backdrop of ever-rising technologies, right? A massive increase in all degrees of technologies. And, of course, the grand finale of World War II was the uh, United States dropping atomic bombs on two cities in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki to uh, end the war in uh, a fashion that was, uh, you know, that's a, always a very controversial thing that happened. I've, I've, I actually was researching it within the past year, you know, th- thoughts on did it really save lives? You know, it was it, there were a lot of lives lost, civilian lives, of course, in those two cities. But how many more people would have died if they had to bring the Japan side of the conflict to an end in a conventional way as... Germany, I think, was already defeated at that point from the land invasion, the D-Day invasion. But anyway, um, right, the U.S. is in, in, in the Depression, and I think that kind of, those kind of economic forces were laid the seeds for what happened in Germany. And then what, what was going on in Japan? This is, this is sort of another mystery. This is sort of a separate thing. There's so many different interweaving storylines with World War II. I mean, Japan is one of the most remarkable and strange countries in the world. Um, 
they they had an era of complete isolation where they would not allow anyone from outside Japan to come to Japan at all, and that went till fairly recently, a few hundred years ago. I don't have the exact dates as I'm not looking it up on, on the internet, but um, always a very insular culture. Um, but clearly a very, you know, they had what it took to prepare for war and, industri- you know, with the industrialization and creating all the weapons and stuff. I'm not really sure what prompted them to uh, ally with Germany. And this is this is part of my, this is just the, my lack of knowledge. I'm not sure what was the seeds of them aligning themselves with Nazi Germany. And I know they did uh, commit terrible atrocities in Korea and in China during the World War II era. Um, was it the Bataan Death March? And even now... Sorry, there's a cat crossing the street and there's a car coming. Okay, that's okay. He's all right. That's Romeo. Um, right, there's so many resentments uh, in terms of what Japan did. In terms of the, uh, the seeming capacity for endless cruelty... Japan and Nazi Germany, at least again in the com in the accepted historical narrative, uh, seem very puzzling, right? This this capacity for utter cruelty and devastation and destruction um, at a human level. So I'm not sure exactly what was going on with um, with Japan. But the United States obviously was trying to stay out of it. So as the rise of Hitler, the Nazis, and uh, I remember they annexed the Nazi Germany, annexed the Sudetenland. It's in Poland or something. Listen, again, I'm not looking at my... This is all from memory. Um, and then I think there was a British prime minister who was did not want immediate war, wanted to, to have a, a policy of appeasement towards Germany. And as they kept... Uh, going step by step, taking over territories and stuff, they were kind of uh, letting it happen, and then it just sort of went too far. And I think the U.S. was still reluctant to enter the war, as it's not, it's, it wasn't our war, it was a European war. Let the Europeans settle it. <clears throat> so uh, things were really heating up in the 1930s, and uh, so then comes, was it December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, Pearl Harbor attack. Rather unbelievably, Japan attacks United States naval base in Hawaii. It's a surprise bombing raid, and uh, you know that that led ultimately to Japan's nuke getting nuked and getting completely defeated. I'm not sure why they did it. I actually was researching that as well uh, in, within the past year or so. Why did they do that? What were their goals? Did they want to take over Korea and China? You know, like, I think they may have had a better chance of pulling that off if they didn't draw on the U.S. because the U.S. at that time was, you know, they say the United States was really not that impressive of a country. People around the world didn't take the U.S. seriously until, I believe, around the time of World War I when we started being seen as kind of a powerhouse, right? As, and again, our, our population our engineers, the capacity to build factories and everything else to build the weapons of war, the U.S. was, I think, in a better position than they would have been, you know, 50 years earlier to do that, right? So I think that's one of the mysteries. And I know there's a lot written of why did they choose to do it. I guess they... I think they may have thought that the U.S. would eventually get into the war. And as they... Why did Japan ally with Germany... I don't know. 
Uh, they felt that maybe a preemptive strike was called for, though I have to really question. I understand you could do a lot of damage with a surprise attack and set things back in terms of having to build more ships and stuff, but uh, did they really anticipate it would be, have been a uh, that much, you know, of a debilitating, uh, right... Obviously, we can build. We can build. We built those ships. We can build more ships. You know, did they think they would? Maybe they thought they could. You know, we would just give up because we lost so many ships. But, you know, in terms of having, I think most governments and most leaders are always looking for enemies, and uh, you know, the, the Japanese at the time were just because they looked different and had a different culture, and they bombed us. I think the leaders were just licking their lips. They're like, wow, we got a big freebie here. <laughs> we can we can now mobilize for war. No one's going to question us at all, you know. And, of course, unfortunately, those terrible caricatures of the Japanese around the time and the Japanese internment camps in America. Listen, America's not innocent in all this either, as there's a lot of what happened in Nazi Germany. They were inspired by the a lot of stuff in the U.S., from the U.S., and, and Britain as well, the British Empire. Anyway, so at that point, we're embroiled in the whole war, right? We declare war. I think that's, a, that's the last time a, an official war was declared by the U.S. Congress because all the other wars were not declared wars. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Iraq II, Afghanistan, whatever. Those were not declared wars, but World War II was a declared war. And uh, the puzzling aspect of the Axis powers is Germany, Japan, and Italy. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Italy? <laughs> uh, yeah, Mussolini. And, and in fact, my grandfather, my father's father, Fra also named Frank Nora, um, you know, he was, uh, he was there during the rise of Mussolini. And he, and he would write anti-Mussolini graffiti in the bathroom of the, the Fiat factory he worked at. Apparently, people from northern Italy really didn't like Mussolini, but people from more southern Italy did like him. Remember, Italy was not a country until a few, like the, eight, the 1850s or something, in that, in that range that actually became a country. Before that, it was all these separate countries that were then unified. Garibaldi was the guy? Don't quote me on, don't quote me on any of this. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, you don't really think of Italy as being these, like, you know, the villain. And they seem to recover from it pretty quickly, as my father recently got really I really got heavily into my father's trip to Italy in 1953 and I asked him really specifically about wow they just were the enemy of the US a few years earlier and he's like yeah it, it was sort of forgotten by that point <laughs> really 1953 it was just you know 8 years earlier right in fact when I was when I was in Rome in 2019 I saw near the Colosseum there's this huge building that I think was built during the fascist the fascist era of the 1930s. It was like this huge, like, palace of nationality or something. It looked very fascist. Um, anyway, you know, uh, some a lot of the seeds of what we know the Nazis for, which, of course, is their white supremacy, eugenics, um, obviously the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, um, and their desire to take over the world, Right? They didn't make that stuff up. So we can point to uh, something that's a bit swept under the rug. The United States, in the United States, there was a very strong eugenics movement, I believe, in the 1920s. Eugenics, of course, is where you 
try to identify those people who are uh, not the type of people you want around, and then you make sure they don't reproduce. And as I recall, they were, in fact, in the U.S., sterilizing those who were criminal, who had committed crimes, and their families. I'd have to do more research on that. But a lot of the, the eugenics movement in, in the U.S. was pretty serious. And uh, apparently Nazi Germany was very inspired by the U.S. eugenics movement. <laughs> Additionally, something that I brought up uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, I think on my show, the uh, Henry Ford, the American industrialist, the Ford Motors, he was a huge anti-Semite, and he published this this book called "The International Jew: The World's Problem," and it was a mass, huge influence on the Nazi Party. Apparently, in Adolf Hitler's book *Mein Kampf*, he's the only American who was described favorably, and he even received, um, you know, there was a time period where the rise of Hitler. Like he, Hitler was man of the year, and the not the Nazi Germans they bestowed upon Henry Ford the uh, like their Medal of Freedom, whatever for the Nazi Party. Like so, I mean, this this was uh, a huge influence on them. Gee, thanks, 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 Henry Ford for that. And um, additionally, in what perhaps proved to be the downfall of Germany at the time. Um, <clears throat> Apparently Hitler and his folks were very uh, very impressed at uh, how Britain and and their empire in previ- of the previous century perhaps uh, was able to take over countries specifically taking over India right with they took over the country they said this is ours now India is ours uh, with this enormous population that easily could have crushed them but they used these techniques and I, again I don't know the specifics of how the British did it. But they really took over the whole country without, through a lot of threats and a lot of manipulation. Apparently, Hitler was impressed with this and decided that he could do the same thing uh, with Russia. So this is this is one of the other wrinkles of World War II is that uh, Hitler was like, you know, facing, um, you know, what was left of the British Empire and now the United States in the war. And, uh, you know, needed to fight them, but also opened up the second front and attacked Russia, which was, uh, you know, not a good idea, but it's probably good that he did it. So they they lost. In fact, um, that TV show, Man in the High Castle, uh, is a a very well done (coughs) vision of what would have happened if, if Germany and Japan had won the war and taken over America. And it's, I really recommend it. It's a it's an interesting alternate history show. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, they they did go to that second front, and uh, you know in that show, Germany developed the atomic bomb before we did. So that's why how they won. They nuked Washington D.C., which did seem to be like this super weapon that was just in the later stages of being developed. Like whoever. Does whoever got it was going to like be able to, you know, win the war basically. Anyway, um, <coughs> so then there's the whole other wrinkle, which is really interesting, as you know, 
the Nazi Germans, the, the Nazi Party's fascination with the occult, right, and the supernatural supernatural artifacts, as you could see very clearly in in, in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. That's where uh, Nazi Germany was in the uh, pursuit of magical items and uh, to help them win the war. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, was one of the items, which is still rumored to be in, now in Ethiopia. And just within the past year, there was this... Hundreds of people were killed like defending the church in Ethiopia that the Ark is supposed to be in. And... Uh, and it is rumored to be a piece of ancient technology that can amplify one's thoughts, but apparently the members of the clergy there that are that guard it need to be trained from childhood to be in the presence of the ark. They have to still their mind and 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 not and and be able to because it, otherwise it amplifies your thoughts. The idea is that if you know how to use it, you could you know levitate hundred ton blocks with it, you know, but with a disorganized mind, it would it would kill you instantly, as we saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The uh, the Nazis heads exploding and faces melting, etc. I think another uh, artifact they were looking for was was it the Spear of Destiny, the spear that a Roman soldier pierced Jesus Christ in the side while he was on the cross. And if you found that, you would win the war. Then all the Antarctica stuff that the you know the rumors that Germany was found something in Antarctica and had early plans for flying saucers, you know, as human-built uh, vehicles. The rockets that they were launching at um, at England and, you know, I just recently tried to restart uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon and uh, and it starts off with that, the rocket attacks on, on England. So again, this, this rising technologies and how it affected the war and right, it seemed crazy it's like science fiction these super weapons and super technologies are emerging as the world is at war and who will get them first right even the Nazis uh, claimed to be Aryans or the master race the Aryans were from northern India right and I think they were the ones behind the uh, the Rig Veda and those that, that those early systems Right, and again, it seems to be some sort of connection to an ancient past, or at least a perceived one. At least they believed it. Not to say that maybe there's no truth to it. Maybe there is no truth to it, but they believed that there was this other stuff going on, and they were trying to take advantage of it. So it really does. It, it really is a very sci-fi war in a lot of ways, and of course, the whole war has been very romanticized and uh, a fascination of, over the war in endless movies and TV shows and video games and board games. Um, the only one thing, they, they, they never made a World War II Lego blocks. I wonder why. I think, I think it's a little, little sensitive topic, you know. I mean, they're not from Germany, but they're from Denmark, pretty close by. So I don't know if they ever did World War II uh, Lego. I think some of the other Lego knockoff companies did, but ne- never. I also thought it'd be cool if they had a line of World War II Lego blocks, you know. Right, because, I mean, the technology of the time, you had the tanks, Right. And the fighter jets were, and the bombers, they all were propeller-driven. This was before, right before, right as, like, jet engines were starting to come on the scene, right? Where the spitfires, like the, uh, you know, the dogfighting that was happening. 
that would certainly inspire Star Wars. Star Wars, um, the <clears throat> the X-wing fighters and the Tie fighters were very inspired by World War II aerial combat, as the stormtroopers were <laughs> were very much inspired by Nazi stormtroopers, right? But you know, so as the narrative goes, I mean, um, Germany, and I don't know when they decided to open up uh, uh, to fight Russia, but there came that point. Whatever, see, I should know exactly the year. Is it forty-three or forty-four? The D-Day invasion. I think it was forty-four. I should know this, but anyway, when the U.S. and Britain secretly developed a plan where they just landed enormous numbers of soldiers in, was that France or Netherlands there? <laughs> this is embarrassing. I should know this stuff. Uh, and just just began a land invasion, right? And uh, I think ultimately, no matter how it was done, the idea is that with the power of the United States, their ability to have, recruit soldiers, right? They had a whole country full of young men who were, and women who worked in various aspects of it, but young men who were already pretty well educated, many of them, um, and were uh, real easy to kind of present the case. Like these, not look at these Nazis and look at these these Japanese. What they're doing? Would you know? We need to go and fight them to for, to save America. Huge numbers of soldiers, and again, the capacity for an. an um, uh, converting factories and to build planes and tanks and transports and all of the you know infrastructure of war that it did I mean I think this is my impression was that once the US was all in on this war it was just a matter of who could build the most tanks and make them build the most guns and had the most will to keep going right it just seemed the writing was on the wall um, and I know they've theorized that Germany may have been able to hold out if it wasn't for uh, the Russian front. But via a conventional warfare, ground invasion and bombings and ay ay ay, yeah, Germany fell. G- Germany was defeated. Then you have that I don't I haven't seen that meme lately where it's it's from a a movie I think it's called Downfall about the the last days of World War II from the uh, Nazi perspective. And Hitler's in that bunker. And then people change the subtitles for whatever various thing. That's very funny. I haven't seen that meme recently. But anyway, yeah, so the theory was that Hitler killed himself and, uh, you know, took over. And I think that perhaps with um, some, obviously with the cautionary tale of what happened after World War One, the post-war plan would have been different. So Germany wasn't going to devolve again in a few years into another, you know, war, you know, trying to wage war again. But of course, that was all really complicated by um, the fairly recently uh, communist Soviet Union, right? So um, as Germany was defeated, we kind of had to split up the country and this was sort of the as the beginning of the Cold War then. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think, like, because Germany was defeated, and then they projected that in a similar case, Japan um, would not have been able to hold out against the U.S. and, and the Allies. 
in a conventionally, but it would have taken a lot longer, right? Obviously, we need to send troops to Japan and in ground invasion of the country. Eventually, um, it, it was sort of a fait accompli at that point. I'm not really sure why, though. I guess Japan had overextended itself and the U.S. just had too many resources. But, of course, we got the A-bomb and uh, nuked the two cities. And then J the Jap Jap Japan surrendered at that point. The idea was if they didn't surrender, we, we would have nuked more cities. And I guess Tokyo would have been, been on the list. Um, and so after, so after World War II, right, it leads right into the Cold War. The U.S. did occupy and was sort of in control of Japan for quite a while. And I think that the intermingling of the essentially sort of the fever dreams and madness of the U.S. and in Japan commingling like that, uh, I think really influenced and created modern Japan, um, which obviously after the war uh, sprang back and became a huge economic powerhouse. Not just that, but a cultural powerhouse. Really, if you look at the, the landscape today, Japan with the video games, the anime, and everything else, is an enormous cultural exporter, as the U.S. is. Um, Germany, and I read an article about this as well. Germany is, you know, one of the largest economies in the world. After the war, came back and has not devolved yet into uh, the chaos of the last two times. They did not really emerge as a cultural powerhouse at all. In fact, very little German music um, <clears throat> uh, or television shows or movies really have had much impact uh, uh, worldwide. Maybe more in, in Europe, but... And it was funny because I, I really... When I thought about that, there's a bunch of articles online trying to theorize why. I mean, the TV show Dark. Uh, awesome, amazing time travel show. If you have not seen Dark... Just D-A-R-K. You have to watch it. And watch it in German with subtitles. And also Babylon Berlin, which is another German production. Those two TV series, fantastic. So there's great stuff coming out of Germany. It's just they don't really have music-wise, right? I mean, they had Falco. Amadeus, Amadeus. Rock me, Amadeus. They had a few things, but come on. <laughs> well, Krautrock, you know, in the 70s, you know, all those bands. The Berlin School. Listen, obviously, I'm, I'm overstating it because... Berlin School Techno and what Tangerine Dream and all those guys. That's really good stuff, but not to the level of the U.S. Uh, of the, so I think <coughs> Japan and the United States, that intermingling that happened there where, where Japan was so influenced by the U.S. and yet still retained their, their, their um, it, very uh, distinctive, austere, not austere, but they're still very cut off from the rest of the world in a lot of ways, and they don't allow a lot of immigration, and they're very traditional. Yet they do have this huge influx of U.S. culture. Um, so uh, somehow, so Germany is split into East and West Germany. At that point, the question then becomes, before the Soviet Union could develop the atomic bomb, why didn't we nuke them and bring them into uh, obedience, obeisance, or whatever the word is. Like, were they anticipating that? 
I mean, the cat's out of the bag. You need a certain level of infrastructure to make atomic bombs, but Russia had it, and they, they got the bomb a few years later, right, which led to the mutually assured destruction uh, concept of the Cold War, where uh, any moment the whole world could break out into nuclear war. But was there a moment, I may have researched this, was there a moment and was there talk of, well, why do we need to give half of Germany? We just defeated Germany. I know Russia was involved. They were our allies. It would seem kind of a crappy thing to do to sort of like turn on them. But I have to think some strategists were like, listen, thanks for helping us. But you know what? No. And I don't know. I guess I guess it was they were our allies. <coughs> and then they obviously when they liberated in Germany, they saw what was going on with the concentration camps and the Holocaust and all that. And Russians helped us with that. So I don't know if like in retrospect, maybe we should have gone on the offensive against Russia at that point. Right. I, like, why do why do they get to have half the country? I mean, you know. That's weird. That that is like you know. So Berlin is it was inside East Germany, but it itself had an eastern and western portion. And then there was that road, that fortified road that went from West Germany just to Berlin. Weird man. Uh, so yeah, and then yeah. So uh, as we saw in the following years, West Germany developed as uh, you know they they sprang back and were economically uh, doing better. But, of course, East Germany was this basket, economic basket case because of the, uh, the policies of uh, the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain. And uh, apparently when they reunited in, what, 1991, they, uh, you know, it was tough because half the country was, like, completely debilitated from, from the economic policies. And I was reading uh, in the case of uh, North Korea it's even worse that it's become so backwards compared to South Korea that no one really relishes the thought of having to like deal with a whole half of the country that's completely backwards to sort of reintegrate them into a modern society. At least that's what I've heard. But, you know, World War II is a prime example of <clears throat> glorifying war in terms of the rhetoric of war, those who fought in the war, heroism, right, honor, right, all these things. I would prefer to, for there to be uh, a sense that before we start honoring all aspects of it, to say, of course we'd prefer that there, we would not have war. Of course it's the last resort. Of course we don't all of the death and destruction we meted out, we would have preferred not to. But it was, we felt it was necessary at the time, right? Mitigating that, I don't ever hear that. All I ever hear is the heroes of the war and whatever war it is, right? Without the sense that we really shouldn't be having war and war is terrible and it should be a last resort and we, we do regret all of the, people that were killed and injured and families destroyed and towns and villages and cultures destroyed in war. 
it just sort of seems that war is glorified, right? And it, there's, there's not – I'm not really putting it into words properly, but you know what I mean? Yes, especially in World War II, and I know there's thoughts on either side of it. In terms of the mainstream narrative, it does seem that, right, it was – we wouldn't want to see a world that was taken over by Nazi Germany, right? And it's taking the mainstream information – and shows like Man of the High Castle, which depicts what a world would be like taken over by the Nazis. Um, yes, it was justified, but it's it's just that it's very hard to tease out, you know, glorifying war. Um, with it, it just seems that you could glorify the people who sacrificed uh, to prevent a world like that. Um, but always using some kind of rhetoric, and maybe they, maybe if they do, maybe there has been. I don't know. Just always trying to mitigate it by saying we prefer this wouldn't have happened, and it was terrible, and there's a lot of blame to go around, and you know. But we do what we thought we had to do at the time, you know. But I don't like the blind glorification of war, warfare, killing, destruction. I don't like that. I guess no one likes it, but 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 people go along with it. But after World War II, which was such an, a massive disaster on a, a, a human level disaster, the atomic bomb, and then later the H bomb, and the, you know, like the bombs they were developing by the '60s and '70s were, you know, orders of magnitude, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand times more powerful than. Was it Fat Boy, Little Man, and Fat Fat Boy and Little Man, the the two first bombs? And I actually saw uh, Enola Gay, which was the uh, the bomber that dropped. Uh, I think Hir- Hiroshima was the first one, right? Um, they restored it, and it's it's at the Udvar-Hazy, uh Museum, Smithsonian Museum in Virginia. Really, is very chilling to see it, uh, Enola Gay, as a, as a, as a plane that dropped one of only two atomic bombs that were uh, used in in a war thus far in this timeline at least um knock on knock on wood i know they've been talking about it a lot lately uh with the ukraine thing and the russia thing going nuts um very chilling to sort of see enola gay almost sort of in an insectoid cockpit and face of it i i actually used the it was a show art adam age vamp was the name of that show <laughs> a picture I <laughs> I took of Enola Gay's cockpit, you know. And then there was that great song, Enola Gay. I should have stayed home yesterday. It was that by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark or some band like that. You know, and apparently it was like some one of the guy, one of the bon, one of the crew members' mothers was named Enola Gay. You know, Gay Gay was a, was like a, a woman's name in the past. I remember the neighborhood I was growing up in. There was this woman named Gay Tally. And she was like a Karen before Karen. She was everyone. She she just annoyed everyone. Gay Tally, <laughs> sort of a uh, proto Karen yeah, in the seventies. Anyway, Enola Gay, yeah. But the thought is that um, there couldn't be another world war. World War Three would just be a world a full scale thermonuclear war, which would be over in a day and most of the world would be in flames and in ruins and, and civilization would take a long time to come back if it did come back i mean nuclear winter and fallout 
you know, the theory is that it could have killed, destroyed all life on Earth in some of those theories. But anyway, I remember that I play that clip on uh, the other side. I am not an atomic playboy. I guess I guess around that time when the, the U.S. was testing the nuclear weapons, which was wild because they I went to the Atomic Testing Museum out in um, by, by in Vegas, Las Vegas. And uh, they uh, <coughs> they used to test it out in the desert and, and you could like watch. You could watch the atomic bombs going off in the desert. <coughs> and they said, really, <coughs> I guess some radiation reached some people's towns and stuff, but it wasn't really that bad. <laughs> then they started to bomb, like, like uh, islands, like, out in the Pacific, and they were just, like, this, these whole villages, they'd tell them to move out so they, they could nuke their island. and Horrible stuff, really, you know. Um, but, the, you know, the idea that this prevented any more world wars... Um, any conventional world wars because, right, if you're, like, again, trying to influence your citizens to go to war, everyone's going to say, well, why do we have to go to war? Just nuke them. (laughs) Oh, well, then they'll nuke us. Well, oh, well, just, you know, we don't need boots on the ground anymore. Just nuke them, you know. So there has been a remarkable time of peace, as I know, if you watch the news, it seems like everything is so bad. But really, there has been much more peace in the world than in, in recent decades than I think maybe there's ever been. Don't quote me on that. But um, we, of course, had the proxy wars, you know, Korea and Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, all that stuff. But nothing on the scale of World War II. And, they, and I think it's essentially the, the atomic bomb um, that has sort of you know, kept that at bay, perhaps. There are even some fringe conspiracy theories that state that the atomic bomb was a big hoax. It does not exist, the te- that it, the technology was never developed, and, it, and the tests you see are just enormous conventional explosions. I don't subscribe to that, but I just want to say those ideas are out there, you know. But if, in essence, if it was a hoax, which I don't think it was, think of all of the... Uh, mayhem that it's prevented, you know, because of this sense of mutually assured destruction. And, uh, you know, Russia, I know the Russia-Ukraine thing now, which, right, the Iron Curtain, obviously we, they were our allies as we defeated Nazi Germany. Things went sour between uh, the Soviet Union and the West, the U.S. and Europe. NATO, the North Atlantic Def- uh, Treaty Organization, was de- was was put together, and uh, <coughs> you know, to sort of even out the power uh, with Russia to make sure Russia didn't expand any further into Europe, as they were, you know, they had Poland, you know, Poland is a huge country, right to the uh, east of Germany, you know, that was under the Iron Curtain. I remember when I went to Greece. They said that they almost succumbed to uh, being behind the Iron Curtain and uh, taken over by the Soviet Union, but the U.S. Uh, did intervene. That's what uh, my wife's relatives in Greece were telling us. Um, and then in recent decades, NATO's expanding after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and uh, supposedly Russia is now feeling hemmed in. And uh, saw the writing on the wall that Ukraine was uh, destined to join NATO. And one of the possible explanations of what happened was they wanted to uh, 
you know, prevent any further NATO expansion. And uh, so really echoes of World War One, uh, sorry, World War Two, are happening today with that Ukraine um, conflict, which uh, there's so much uh, propaganda about that, so much propaganda going on. Um, <clears throat> I try not, I, I, as I don't watch, I do not watch any of the news channels, and I'm very disinterested in politics, and I don't feel connected to either side of, you know, the left or the right, the Democrats or Republicans. So I don't really, I mean, of course I see the headlines online about Ukraine and everything. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I think, you know, since I'm Gen X, I lived with the tail, you know, the portion of the Cold War and the threat of annihilation that as a kid they were telling us, you know, you could be nuked. Hey, Frankie. You could be nuked at any time and die instantly, and you'll be vaporized by the atomic bomb. That really does something to you, you know. It's like a whole all generations. I mean, it wasn't quite the whole duck and cover thing with the turtle, you know. Duck and cover when you get nuked. Duck and cover. <laughs> Go under your desk and put your hand over your head. Great. That'll really help with a nuke. I know. If you're a certain distance, it might help. If a certain distance away from the detonation, it might help. Anyway, and then there's all those radiation pills, which just helps flush radioactive particles out of your body, you know. Radiation, yes, indeed. <laughs> Repo man. Anyway, <laughs> so I, but I think uh, at a certain point, right, probably those kids that, the millennials, I, I know everyone's always bashing on millennials, but they did not have as much of that, uh, nuclear fear as as we Gen Xers had that I think a lot of people are really gung-ho about just going all in on this Russia thing without any mitigating fears of nuclear annihilation so uh, again these are all kind of reflections and echoes of, of World War II still going on today uh, hopefully we won't get nuked hopefully but as I've been theorizing uh, there may be timelines where there is a nuclear war and somehow hopefully we're sidestepping that into timelines uh without nuclear war hopefully <laughs> anyway world war ii hope hope i was somewhat accurate in my uh off the top of my head <laughs> let me know if i i'm sure i got a lot of stuff wrong but let me know <laughs> back to you pq well that's all everything else aside while war may eventually lead to a good reality, good results sort of a situation. The war, you can't, like, well, sometimes in a culture, in order to rile up those young people and inspire them, uh, they have to be deluded into thinking that this is good and they're doing this for a good cause or it's a morale it's so complicated and we really should learn to not solve conflicts with violence but we don't oh man that you know that that would be a cool innovation for humanity i'm sure we can all agree uh a cessation of resorting to violent solutions uh but i 
God, that would be great. I am not at all in any way. I, my skepticism, however, leads me to consider alternative means of dealing with the reality I see coming down a given pike. Um, war. Oh boy. And World War II, what Japan was doing in China, I'm sure you read about that, Frank. There were a number, I don't know what was driving Japan to feel obliged to do that. Uh, and taking out our um, naval forces in the Pacific, which was the intention of the Pearl Harbor bombing. Uh, we, uh, fortunately for us, had ships they didn't know that were out of that harbor, or it, it very well could have made it, so they could have just taken the whole Pacific uh, and armed it, and that really would have helped the whole Axis powers situation. And I don't know, using the nuke, uh, it's really... I believe from the veterans I've spoken to, and my research leads me to believe we likely did the right did the right thing. It's it, it, like you say, Frank. How can you say something like that was a right action? But you, the the, the troops who are on the ground and considering a ground invasion of Japan at that point in time. Well, we'll never know, because we weren't there. And if uh, we can accept that some of the news and information we get today may have a distortion level, um, there may have been there may have been reasons, yeah, like a testing the weapons, and I would, what we would do, uh, or any other country would do in the name of uh, better warfare. Historically, is just you know to us civilians and nice people and kind people, not exactly good. War. World War II. And I think, believe it or not, especially in Europe, maybe even, oh yeah, I think we lost more people. World War I, Frank. World War I was just really brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat in those trenches with gas and, and, and these... Uh, in oh, man. Uh, it's this just thousands of people dying at the same time because your entire trench system has been slowly undermined with tunnels and they have planted dynamite. I mean, back then they didn't have any special explosives, but they have loaded these tunnels chock full of dynamite under everywhere your troops are and they go back to their trenches and press down a plunger things like that happened and yeah this was not I mean, world war ii 
especially the nuclear bomb stuff, was pretty devastating, much less uh, Dresden. The bombing of Dresden with conventional weapons, it, 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 the, the air in the city of Dresden ignited. That's right. All the oxygen in the city of Dresden ignited. Think about that a minute. Uh, many say that was a far more devastating. Of, of course, it took many, many planes and many, many bombs, as opposed to just, you know, Enola Gay and their escorts dropping one. But we did some pretty devastating things, don't you think? But, yep, yeah, th there you have it, World War One, And I believe this is the second World War, World War One, World War Two. Oh, man. PQ River, uh, yes, old age is sinking in rapidly. Uh, pretty soon. <laughs> I keep looking around to, for someone to hand the overnightscape central torch to, but I, I, I think I'm going down with this ship, or who knows? What will you guys do after the old geezer croaks? Well, hopefully we have a couple of decades to worry about that. Uh, I, even if I lose my teeths, I can gum my way through the overnightscape central. Oh, man, it just it, all those celebrities that, you know, they lost their teeth and they, they don't have real teeth anymore, but that they're those choppers. Oh, man, I, I can sit my, my future and my choppers. What a life. The aging process. Oh, oh, oh. There is a topic for a future overnight scape central. I don't think next week, because uh, the, the Anunnaki, I believe, have something else in mind here. So um, uh, let us thank Frank Edward Nora and Doc Slees for their participation. And now it's your turn. That's right. I am inviting you, all your friends, anybody within the sound of my voice listening to this transmission. Come on. Join us. Um, this, this one, I don't know how many people can relate to, but it is a topic that the Anunnaki have um, kind of whispered in my ear and like they did sometimes i am sitting here thinking what are we going to do next week and sometimes i even have something else written down here and then i just this thought occurs and uh, yes i blame it on the anunnaki of course i have no uh, evidence to connect it to anything other than a figment of my imagination just in case uh you are wondering or thinking that i actually uh you know have some little anunnaki deity uh that lives under my mattress and whispers things to me on uh, wednesday evenings Nope, nope. And I am driveling big time. The topic for next week's Overnightscape Central is The Late Late Show. Now, those of you who uh, hear that and it's just like, what is he talking about? Look it up. Uh, if not, just, just go with it as whatever impression you get from something that would be called The Late Late 
show because I don't know, I did Dave in Kentucky. I, I can call out all the older geezers in our um, circle. But uh, you young people, I don't know if Shambles Constant even would know, or Mike Booty, but the late, late show it will be what we will be talking about. And here's all the fine-tuning. You got something to write? Well, of course you do, because you're ready this time. You want to talk about the Late Late Show next week on the Overnightscape Central. So listen up. The email address that you will need is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. The deadline for your entry is the evening of November 15th, 2022, or if you get it to me early on the 16th, you'll be good. Uh, But that's the parameter time-wise. Once again, I'm going to give you that email address again, kpqr.torc at gmail.com. One more time, kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Doggone it. Uh, Even if you just say hello, and this show is late, late. Didn't this used to happen on Mondays? Yeah, actually, this has become the late, late show. Because if it was on Tuesdays, it would be the late show. And Wednesday, yeah, well, that kind of thinking. Uh, But, yeah, it would be nice to hear from you. And that's really the fact of the matter. So uh, do consider joining us, and you are cordially invited. If you don't feel, uh, if you're mic shy or don't have a mic or any of that stuff, just type something up. Send it to the same email address that I just gave you, and I'll read it And on your behalf. And let's all have fun together here. And I do look forward. Just, uh, I'm thankful that you're listening. Let us not mince words here. Uh, that uh, the idea that uh, I am speaking to you at this very moment, wherever you are in time and space, that that's the whole reason for doing this, is it not? So uh, with that, this PQ River persona and myself uh, wish you would join me as we set the controls for the heart of the fun till the next time.